58 years ago, Yule Brenner, Charles Bronson, James Coburn, Robert Vaughn, Steve McQueen, they all took on Eli Wallach and his band of henchmen. Seven gunfighters were hired to protect a small village from marauding bandits. Now, you might be asking yourself, what do old westerns and scripture have to do with each other this morning? Well, uh, today we're going to uncover the Magnificent Seven of Ezra chapter 1 to 3. The Magnificent Seven of Ezra 1 to 3. It serves as a sort of handy guide to get our arms around timeless truths from this ancient book. And so I'd like for you to turn with me in the Word of the Lord to the book of Ezra. And if your neighbor looks confused, you can tell him it's on page 492 of the Blue Pew Bible, because I'm sure you know where it is, right? But your neighbor, 492 of the Blue Pew Bible. We will be in Ezra for five weeks, uh, and then later we will have the book of Esther, which happens between Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll be in there for five weeks, and then we'll be in the book of Nehemiah for a while. So we're in the post-exilic uh, period uh, as God releases His people to return to the promised land and we'll be there for three books and this is the first Sunday of the first book. Are you ready? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for the opportunity to stand before Your Word in awe, in reverence, in humility. We ask that You would speak to us from neglected corners of Scripture that as we go to passages and places that uh, few of us may be well versed in, that You may speak uh, with a clarity, uh, with a clarion call, right specifically to our lives, to our homes, to our hearts, because Your Word is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it is able to divide thought from spirit and joint from marrow. We pray, Lord Jesus, that You would use the Word of God to show us the timeless relevance of the truths recorded therein, how You took the real history of Your people, and yet You sovereignly stated the story so that every generation can be challenged to a life of faith and faithfulness. I pray, Lord Jesus, that the Magnificent Seven of today's passage would stick with us, that at least one of the seven would be something that You would implant in our hearts and minds throughout the rest of the week that we could chew on and live on uh, for Your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Ezra. We're going to do three chapters. You ready? There's a lot to read, so, so hang with me. Uh, this is what happens when you're in the historical books. There's a lot of ground to cover. So the Bible says in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So that's going to give us a timeline. That's when this is happening. We'll talk more about that in a minute. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Judah. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place, that is, his neighbors, those around him, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, beside freewill offerings for the house of God, that is, in Jerusalem. And then rose up the heads of the fathers of the houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests of the Levites and everyone else whose spirit God had stirred, the spirit God had stirred to rebuild the house of the Lord, that's in Jerusalem. And all those who were about them aided them, gave them stuff, gave them vessels of gold with goods and beasts and costly wares and besides all that was freely offered. And Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of uh, Mithradoth and the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, 1,000 other vessels, and all the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400 items. All these did Sheshbazar bring up, and when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Chapter 2. Now, these were the people of the province who came out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylon. 
They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And they came with Zerubbabel and Joshua and Nehemiah and Sarai and Reli and uh, Mordecai and Bilshan and Mispar and Bigvi and uh, Rehum and Banah. The number of men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parshath, were 2,172. And the sons of Shephatiah, uh, 372. And the sons of, of Ara. And the list goes all the way down, listing all of the people, and they're hard to pronounce names that I will spare you, and the exact numbers you can read on your own. Then we get to verse 36. And those are all the people that came down. And the priests and the son of Jedidiah, the house of Jehua, 973. And, and it goes on. In verse 40, and the, the sons of Jeshua of Cadmel, and the sons of Hovadiah, and the singers, and the sons of Asaph, 128, and the gatekeepers, and, and, and on and on. And now we get to verse 43. And the temple servants, the son of Zia, and the son of Hashufa, and the son of Teboath, and the son, and it goes all the way down. And then you get to verse 55, and it says the sons of Solomon's servants, and it lists them. And then it goes to verse 58, and all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392, giving a very specific accounting of the people who were returning and their various stations and places and, and abilities. Verse 59, and the following are those who came up from Telmea and Telsharth and Sherub and, and Adon and Emmer and those who could not prove their father's houses of their descent. There were some people in the diaspora who couldn't say, I'm definitely of this house or I'm definitely a Levite or I can trace my... And they, they came, but they were not able to become Levites because they couldn't trace their uh, descendancy back. So whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Delilah, the sons of Tobah, the sons of Dakota, 652. Also the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Haggai, the son of, of uh, Barzillai, uh, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gladite, who, who was called by name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies but they were not found there. So they went and they said, hey, I'm, I'm related to this person, and I belong to this person, and they checked the roles, and they couldn't substantiate this. And so since they were not found in the genealogies, they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. They were allowed to return. They were God's people, but there were rules on who could be a priest. And if you couldn't verify that your lineage would go back to the Aaronic priesthood, you couldn't be a priest. So they returned, but they didn't return as priests. Okay, Verse 63, the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult the Urim and Thurim. That is, when you get back to the Holy Land, you can have the high priest in the temple. He can determine the answer to this situation. Alright, verse 64. The whole assembly together made 42,360. Now there were others. Verse 65, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. And there were horses, 736. And mules, 245. And camels, 435. And donkeys, 67,020. Now some of the heads of the families, when they came from, house, from the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem, they made freewill offerings for the house of God. So these returnees, when they came to Jerusalem, they gave of their meager possessions and a free will offering so they could erect the house of God on this site. According to their ability, that is, they gave as God gave them the ability. Some had more, some had less. They gave according to what they could share. According to their ability, verse 69, they gave the treasury of the work 6,100 derricks of gold, 5,000 minus of silver, and 100 priestly garments. Now, the priests, the Levites, some of the, gate, uh, the people... The singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants, well, they lived in the towns, and all the rest of Israel scattered back in their towns. Chapter 3. Now when the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man. Everybody came back to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jezadok, with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shetel with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of God. What's the first thing they built? They built the altar of God. Okay. To offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the people of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths as it's written. And they offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings and the offerings at the noon, new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. And from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. They had an altar, but they didn't have a 
a temple. That would late later, and that would take another movement of God's hand. Verse 7, So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and the food and drink and oil. They, they reached out to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring the great cedar from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. And they needed the materials to rebuild the house of God. And so they reached out to those places that had those special wood. Verse 8, now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shetel, and Jeshua, the son of Zodak, made a beginning together with the rest of the kinsmen and the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. And they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and up. So that's when you could start serving. 20 years old and up to supervise the work in the house of the Lord. The, the, the rebuilding of what needed to happen. And Yeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah and together supervised the workmen of the house of God along with their sons of, of Hennad the Levite and their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. So how far they got? They got as far as laying the foundation. That's as far as they got at that stage. The priests in their vestments came forward to do their holy office, okay? They came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord at the, at the reinstitution of the foundation of the house of God, according to the direction of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively. So one side would sing, and the other would answer back and back and forth, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout. And when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But look at verse 12. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' households, the old men, who had seen the first house, they had still been alive 70 years ago. They had seen the great temple that was built. And now they saw the foundations of the new temple. And, and while others were shouting and rejoicing, these men, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. And though many shouted aloud for joy, they wept so the people could not distinguish the sound of a joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with great joy and the sound was heard far away. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Friends, Ezra is a very unique book. Very unique book. It's one of only two Old Testament books that contain a significant amount of Aramaic. Uh, the other book is Daniel. In the book of Daniel, when the prophecies of Daniel concern the Gentiles, God wrote those prophecies in Gentile-friendly Aramaic. Equally, in the letters to and from the Persian king Artaxerxes in Ezra chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, in those letters to and from a pagan monarch, the Bible again writes in, in Aramaic. So the pagan king could better understand it. Ezra is also unique, not just because it contains a significant amount of Aramaic, which is unusual, but also because it alone, in all the Bible, explains how the Israelites returned to the Promised Land after a 70-year period of Babylonian captivity. This is the book, and the only book, that explains that strategic return from the hand of God. Ezra is the only book that explains how the temple of God shall be rebuilt. Now you go to the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah records how the walls of Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but Ezra records the rebuilding of the altar in 535, and then the erection of the temple in 515. You don't have Ezra, you don't know how they come back, you don't know how the altar comes back, you don't know how the temple comes back, you have a huge hole in the history of God's people. But we do have Ezra, because God didn't want there to be a hole. Now how many of you, if you're honest, read Ezra very much? There's probably a hole in our understanding. So we're going to pray over this series that we would learn all the things that the church has gotten lazy and forgotten. <laughs> uh, because it's easy to overlook passages of Scripture, but we ought not. Now, another thing you need to know is the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah in the Hebrew Scriptures are one book in the Hebrew Bible. And it's not until the 3rd century A.D. that we begin to separate them. So what we have in our English Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, in the Hebrew Bible is one book. Okay? Now, Ezra is not just wedded to Nehemiah, it is also linked to the book of Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Chronicles in our Bible, but they just have it as one as Chronicles. The end of Chronicles is almost identical to the beginning of Ezra. If you read Chronicles, and you get to the end, and then you get to Ezra, and you get to the beginning, you go, that's almost exactly the same. And that leads many people throughout the history of God's people to say, you know what, the author of Ezra is almost certainly the author of, of Chronicles. And that's why they're so similar. So then it begs the question, who is the chronicle 
the chronicler of First and Second Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, that's a good question because the Bible never tells us exactly who wrote it. So why do we call this the book of Ezra? And why do most people think that the book of Ezra was written by Ezra and the book of First and Second Chronicles and the book of Nehemiah? And if you read in the book, you're going to get to Ezra chapter 7, Ezra chapter 8, Ezra chapter 9, and you're going to see that that section of the book is written in the first person. And the person who's clearly speaking is Ezra. And so, since Ezra and Nehemiah were one book, those two books were probably written by Ezra. And since Chronicles ends the way Ezra begins, most people would say that that Ezra, Nehemiah, 1 and 2 Chronicles, all written by Ezra. And we do that by logical induction. You with me? All right. Now, so if Ezra wrote Ezra and Nehemiah, and he potentially wrote 1 and 2 Chronicles as well, the question is, what was happening in that time? And, And there's a man named John Corson. And he paints this picture very well, and I'm going to quote him directly. Here it is, you ready? Quote, in 586, it was a day of infamy in Jewish history. For it was then that Nebuchadnezzar led his Babylonian soldiers into Jerusalem, where they burned the temple, they destroyed the city, and they carried away scores of Jews into captivity. And and so watching the scene from a hillside overlooking the city, The prophet Jeremiah wept profusely, the Bible tells us. And for nearly 40 years, Jeremiah had warned the people of impending judgment unless they repented. And not a single person repented in 40 years. He preached, he prayed, he prophesied, he even was in prison. And no one repented. And so, God took His people away. They wouldn't listen to His prophet. They wouldn't listen to His Word. They wouldn't repent. And so God said, I'm going to take you into captivity. He carried them away into Babylon. That is who the one who took them away. Now, why did God take them into captivity? There are two main reasons. And the first reason is that they stubbornly, they continually, they steadfastly steep themselves in idolatry. The idols they worshipped were not just hay, wood, and stone. The the idols they worshipped represented lifestyles in strident opposition to the one true God. You take Ashtaroth, and he was the goddess of sensuality, and so people gave themselves over to sexual hedonism instead of the one true God. And then there was Molech, the god of prosperity, and they would light their own children on fire to get rich. And there was Baal, the god of the intellect, and they would, they would look to wisdom that was greater than God's wisdom. And then lastly, there was Mammon, and that is the god of money. There's nothing new under the sun. The things that brought God's judgment to God's people in the ancient days were this. They worshipped false idols of sensuality, prosperity, intellect, and money. If only the Old Testament was relevant today. God's people found themselves sucked further and further and further into idolatry until the Lord disciplined those He loved. And He sent them into the Babylonian captivity. Now why Babylon? Because Babylon was the center of Sumerian and Amorite worship. It's the very heart of of those religions, as it were. He's saying, you want to follow those things? I'm going to send you to those things. I'm going to let you see exactly what it's all about. You you don't just need to take it from the periphery and sometimes save me for, for, for the holy days, but rather, if this is where you want to go, I'll let you go headlong into this. And so during the 70 year captivity, an amazing thing happened to the people of God. God's people got so burned out on idolatry. This is the thing that they have fought their entire life. From, from, from the very beginning, that, that they made a calf of gold. Remember that? Uh, when they'd just been released, they always fought with idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. All through the Scriptures until the captivity. And then for the rest of Hebrew history, we never again see Israel falling to idolatry with that intensity ever again. Do you know why? Because God cured them by giving them over to their sin. By letting them see full tilt where the temptation leads. And it leads to death and bondage and pain. Not to pleasure, but to death and to bondage and to pain. And so once God people, after 70 years of seeing the full horror and futility of where that road leads, they said, I don't want to go down that road anymore. Now there's a second reason why God took them into captivity for 70 years. He took them into that place because it was the home field advantage of those gods. But He took them for 70 years for a separate reason. 
God's people uh, had skirted God's Word in one area, and they had flaunted it just flagrantly. In Leviticus 25, the Bible says every seventh year, they were to let the land rest. A Sabbath rest. They were not to till. They were not to sow. They were not to reap. They were not to do anything with the land. Now, people did the math, and they thought, boy, that's a really bad investment and how are we going to eat? And how are we going to get ahead? If every seven years we have to save up extra on the sixth year to make it through the seventh year. So they just didn't do it. They didn't do it the first seven years and nobody dropped dead. And they thought, we got away with it. So the second seventh years came along and I'm sure some priest somewhere read something on a Sunday or Saturday or whenever they did it and said, oh, there's the Sabbath, right? And there's a Sabbath year. And people said, shh. And they did that over and over and over and over and over again for 490 years. 490 years, God's people ignored God's very clear teaching in Leviticus 25. Now, unbeknownst to them, God was keeping score. God remembered every time they didn't do it. And as a result, according to 2 Chronicles 36.21, 2 Chronicles 36.21, the land was given rest for how long? For 70 years. One year for every seven they failed to observe the Sabbath. Man was supposed to do this every seven years. Israel failed to do this, and so God took them away and made them a year of slavery for every seven that they failed to trust God in Sabbath rest. And that brings us to our first point today, the first S of the Magnificent Seven. And that is this, the surety of God's Word over every obstacle. The surety of God's Word over every obstacle. You can take the Word of God to the bank. You may not see it happening today, but God is still sovereign, and He's working away for His glory in His story. I want you to flip back to the other book. Go to 2 Chronicles 36, which is just before this. 2 Chronicles 36, starting at verse 17. 2 Chronicles 36, 17. Two Chronicles 36 and verse 17, the Bible says, Therefore God brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. That's another word for the Babylonians. Chaldeans, Babylonians, same thing. And this king killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. At the very temple itself, their own people were not safe. And he had no compassion on the young men or the virgin or the old man or the age. Didn't matter, man, woman, or child, old or young. He gave all of them into his hand. Now I want you to skip down to verse 20. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. So as long as the Babylonians were on the throne, God's people were in captivity in Babylon. Why was this? Very clearly. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah that no one listened to until the land had enjoyed its what? Its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate kept Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. You see, God had decreed a Sabbath rest, and Israel refused to do it willingly, so God in the Babylonian captivity did it sovereignly, and unfortunately painfully. But God was sovereign over even His people's intransigence. Now I want you to flip for a second to Jeremiah 25.11. You say, where is that? That's on page 828 to help your lost neighbor. That's Jeremiah 25.11 on page 828. We're establishing the surety of God's Word. Jeremiah 25.11, that weeping prophet who begged his people for 40 years, obey God, obey God, obey God, and they, they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. Jeremiah 25.11 on page 828 this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. 70 years. God said it. Nobody listened. God did it. God did it because of the surety of His Word. Jeremiah gives that prophecy before the Babylonian army had come. And you're going to see similar prophetic promises. I don't have time to go through them all, but you can go to Jeremiah chapter 27. You can go to Jeremiah chapter 29. You can go to Jeremiah chapter 33. And in each text, God will specifically promise 70 years of captivity and temple inactivity in response to their idolatry. Now, if we take the time from the first Israelite deportation, 
Okay, so the, the Israelites are taken in stages. If you read Hebrew history, it's not everybody falls on the same day. There's the first deportation, which happens in 605 B.C. And you go from 605 B.C., that first deportation, the first fulfillment of the prophecy, to, uh, to the year uh, 536. Now, what happens in 536? That's when the temple is reconstructed. If you go from here to there, you get 70 years. From the first deportation to the temple reconstructed, you get uh, 70 years. Or if you take the time from the temple being destroyed, the temple is destroyed in 586, uh, to the time it's, it's fully rebuilt. So, so the foundations are laid in uh, 536, but the temple itself in 515, guess what? The math there? 70 years. So whichever way you look at it, from the deportation to the reestablishment of the foundation, or if you look at it from, from the time of total captivity to the time of actual reinstatement of temple activity, it's 70 years. God fulfilled this promise exactly twice. So there'd be nobody to go, I wonder if God meant it. Did it dead on, straight on, 100%, 70 years, either way. Now, I want you to go back to our very first verse. Verse 1 of Ezra. Chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. God did it this way for a reason. God did it this way to prove a point. God did it this way to show the surety of His word. Uh, friends, I don't know if you know this, but a nation in captivity has no capacity for exilic recovery. It, it, that nation is entirely subject to the foreign power that is standing on its neck. It has no ability to choose anything. It is in slavery. But in the providence of God, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon had fallen, and the Persians had risen and taken over the throne of the empire that once belonged to the Babylonian overlords. And the, 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 the Cyrus Cylinder, which stands in the British Museum, you can go and you can look at it if you go to London, the Cyrus Cylinder, of the very Cyrus of our passage this morning, that King Cyrus of Persia, he has a cylinder. And on that cylinder in the British Museum, it says that this newly minted Persian sovereign, after overthrowing his Babylonian overlord, well, he tried to make his new subjects happy. How do you make people happy? You're the new king. You want to make them happy. Well, I'm not like the old king who took you into slavery. I'm the Persian guy. You should pay taxes to me. You should do what I ask. So what's a good way to make people happy? Let people who've been taken in slavery go home. And so the Cyrus Cylinder in the British Museum tells us that Cyrus issues an edict to most of the people, not just the Jewish people, but many of the people, that they can go back to their homelands and reinstitute the worship of their gods if they want. It was a shrewd political tactic. That is how the people of God end up being released. Now, the timing was such that those who returned and those who worked on the temple, even after this very long delay, well, it all finishes at exactly 70 years, no matter how you do the math. So it may have been Cyrus wanting a political move, but it's God and His sovereignty going out of His way from two angles to show that He's fulfilling prophecy. Now, let's say you're a hardened skeptic, and I would understand your kind, because that's who I was, and you go, you know what, Sean, this is just a really, 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 really super convenient coincidence. All right. I don't think it's the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, even though he hit the date exactly and did it twice just to make sure you couldn't say that. Uh, hey, let's do this. Let's turn to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 on page 770. Isaiah 45 on page 770. Different prophet, different prophecy. Wow, it's hard to get around this one. Isaiah 45 on page 770. Thus says the Lord to His anointed. To who? To Cyrus. Cyrus isn't born yet. Cyrus isn't king yet. The Persians aren't important yet. Isaiah's writing this while the Jews still have the land, still have the temple, the Babylonians are ascending, the Persians are a vassal state. The Lord says to His anointed, to Cyrus, a man not yet born, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before Him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before Him that the gates may not be closed. I will go before you and I will level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of irons and I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who you call by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen. I call you, pagan king, Cyrus, by your your name. I name you Cyrus the Persian. That though you do not know me, I am the Lord. 
and there is no other, and besides me there is no God. And history tells us that Cyrus was told this by the Jews, and he was shocked that his name had come up. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me, that I am the Lord and there is no other. Friends, this is why all the liberals say that there's two Isaiahs, Deutero-Isaiah, because they cannot stand this prophecy. They cannot have an authentic date for when Isaiah wrote, because if he wrote this in his lifetime, then this had to be predictive prophecy of a man in a nation that you could have never guessed. I want you to skip down to verse 13. I have stirred him. Who's the him in context? It's Cyrus, king of Persia. I've stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. And he shall build my city. And he shall set my exiles free. Not for price or reward. Meaning they won't get anything out of it. They'll just give it away. Says the Lord of hosts. Now Isaiah wrote those words 180 years before they historically happened. When Isaiah writes his prophecy, Babylon is in its ascendancy, but the Persians are a joke. Uh, The Persians were just a vassal state to the Babylonians. They had no great army. And the Persian king Cyrus will not be born for another 140 years, but God gets it right. Down to the man. Down to the minute. God precisely predicted Cyrus' service way back in Isaiah's day, and it came to impeccable, impossible fruition in Ezra's day in our passage today. Why? Because of the first S of the Magnificent Seven, the surety of God's Word. Despite every obstacle, the surety of God's Word. Friends, when God makes a promise, He keeps His Word. If God promises Jesus will return, let me tell you what, Jesus is going to return. If God promises He will never leave us or forsake us if we put our hope in Jesus, He will never leave us or forsake us if we put our hope in Jesus. If God says that He will save all who put their faith in Jesus, He will save all. What are you doing with the promises of God? Because God is waiting, and one day God will be answering. And every promise will be yes and amen. There is surety in God's promises. And they will surely overcome every obstacle. Man, government, Satan, anyone puts in front of them. Even the gates of hell shall not prevail against God's promises. That brings us to our second point. I'm going to talk to you about the sovereignty of God over our governments. The sovereignty of God over government. The sovereignty of God over governments. Now, who was in charge in our passage governmentally? And the answer to that is the Medo-Persian king, a man by the name of Cyrus. But I want you to listen again to verse 1 of our text. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. You see, Cyrus thought he was making a pretty smooth political move. He's going to secure loyalty entirety on the Israelites when they return to their land. But all he was really doing was fulfilling prophecy. He just didn't understand it. Politicians and potentates like to think that they're in charge, that they are sovereign. But let me tell you, the universe has a true sovereign. A true sovereign. And his will is never ultimately thwarted. Never. It's never thwarted. Proverbs 21.1, you might want to write that down in your Bibles. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wants. Proverbs 16.9, in the heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Look again at verses 7-10. to Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. And Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of uh, Midrath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. And all the vessels in gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Shepsbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. You know what that means? 
That means for 70 years, God stored his stuff. Nothing went missing. Nothing was stolen. Hey, friends, nothing was melted down. If you're a conquering king, one of the first things you do is, hey, that's pretty, melt that down and make my wife a brooch. Because I am tougher than the Hebrews and their God. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't melt down a single item. No one sold off a piece of the collection. A thief never took off with some forgotten thing in the added historic unit of Nebuchadnezzar's grand hall. It just sat there waiting for the fulfillment of divine prophecy. It was stored for safekeeping so a later Persian king could relinquish it so that God's people could put it back to use for the glory of God when God was ready to stop disciplining His children and let them again return to worship. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God over governments? And sometimes saints hyperventilate when the state is hostile to the gospel. But we need to remember that Jesus is firmly seated on His throne. No matter who sits in any Oval Office or Parliament or Putin or Mugabe, whoever you think is big and powerful, He's a mist, he's a vapor, and he's only there because there is a Savior who's sovereign over that person. We need to remember Jesus is firmly seated on his throne no matter whatever Caesar utters from the gutter. A thousand Caesars are going to rise and they're going to fall, but Jesus will remain King of kings and Lord of all. And that's how it is. He's firmly on the throne. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. So King Jesus, from His unmovable throne of uncontestable sovereignty, will He move the heart of the, pay, of the pagan Persian potentate uh, to, to empty His own treasury, to just shake loose every last effect that belonged to God's people, to release God's people and God's stuff, long held in captivity, 70 years worth. And He told them, go back and rebuild the temple of God. That's how pagan kings normally work, right? You get in charge, the first thing you do is, hey, here's somebody I didn't hurt. Let me give their stuff away. Let me send away my people. So that brings us to point three today. We've looked at the sovereignty of God over governments. Let's look at the stirring of God's Spirit over the hearts of the lost and saved. Friends, God stirs the hearts of not just the saved, but the lost and the saved in our passage, and He does it over and over and over because He's God. He's God. The stirring of God's Spirit over the hearts of the lost and saved. We'll go back to verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his, all his kingdom and he put it in writing. So the first thing we see in the very first chapter is God stirs the heart of a pagan king. Now, this man did not worship Yahweh. He did not know Yahweh. But God, in His sovereignty, had sovereignty over that man's authority, and He stirred his heart, so He inclined him to do the things of God. Did you know God can use unbelievers to build His work? Yeah. Yeah. When I was a missionary, somebody once said, you know, uh, well, you know should, you, should you take that check from that person? You know, they're not walking with the Lord. I'm like, hey, if the United Muslim Foundation wants to write me a million-dollar check to share the gospel, I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to cash that check. Because God does use pagans. Now, He tends to use His people. But God is sovereign over everything and everybody. If that doesn't change our message, then it's not a problem. If it changes your message, if you're now bowing to the United Pagan Foundation, then that's different, right? But God can use anybody and He used Cyrus. He, he, he uses unbelievers. God used a very early Pharaoh to save Israel from starvation, didn't He? Yeah. And then he used a later Pharaoh's subsequent enslavement to protect Israel so it grew from 75 people in Genesis to the 2 million in Exodus. He used another Pharaoh to do that. God used the decree of Caesar Augustus to bring Jesus from, uh, to a manger in Bethlehem though mom and dad lived in Nazareth and he would have never been born in Bethlehem if there hadn't been that decree. Did you know that? God is working in this world. And he works in both the saved and in the lost. And so just as God stirred the heart of this pagan king, you're going to see in this passage that He stirs the heart of the pagan neighbors as well. And then He's going to stir the heart of the spiritually sluggish Israelite brothers. I want you to look at verse 4 again. Pagan Persian Cyrus said, Let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place. Meaning, I'm letting Jews go home and the pagan neighbors next to him need to help him with silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, with free will offerings, the house that is in Jerusalem. Now, who was that returning? Uh, who was that little group there? Those many Persian pagans. 
Just as God used the Egyptians to, to, to bless Israel when, when, when they were leaving in the Exodus. They plundered the Egyptians, the Scriptures say. Here, God uses the pagans, and, and He also is going to use the sluggish believer who, who won't have enough faith to follow all the way back to the Holy Land, but He's going to empty His wallet too. Now, when you read this passage, it's a little bit discouraging because only a, a very slender sliver of saints will take God up on His offer to return. Only about 50,000 of the 3 million Jews alive are going to follow God back to Jerusalem. That means a sad truth, a hard truth, but a true truth nonetheless. It means most of God's people were unwilling to return. And yet God made that unwilling majority willing to aid their brothers. And they opened their wallets and they gave them things so that the, 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 the faithful had the resources they needed to glorify God. You see, God is not just sovereign over the pagans. And He's going to use them as He desires. But friends, He's sovereign over stiff-necked saints who don't always listen to God. He can still use them for His glory. He can still use those people to do great things for His name. Sometimes even in spite of us. Very often I pray that God would use us with us, to us, through us, and even in spite of us. Some of the best times God's used me, I think, is when He's worked around me. God does not need anybody, but He can use everybody. And so it is better to serve willingly, the Scriptures would teach, than begrudgingly. Because the King rewards faith and faithfulness. But He's going to accomplish His purposes either way. In disobedience or obedience, what man means for evil, God can use for good. It's better to be obedient that you be blessed than be disobedient and still end up helping God achieve His purposes. Now, God's Spirit moved the pagan. God's Spirit moved the backslidden who refused to go. But it also moved the heart of the faithful. Look at chapter 2 and verse 68, which speaks of the heads of those whose hearts were willing to make the scary journey to return to desolate, desperate Israel to make a new start for the glory of God. The Bible says in Ezra 2, 68, some of the heads of families when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So these are the returnees because they've traveled now from Babylon all the way to Jerusalem. What did they do when they came to the site? They made free will offerings for the house of God. Do you know what free will offerings are? They're offerings that you make on your free will. It wasn't everybody needs to give 10% or get a goat of a certain size. It was whatever the Lord lays on your heart. And these people who were faithful, just like God moved the heart of the pagan king, just like God moved the heart of the pagans around them, just like God moved the heart of the backslidden believer who wouldn't come, God moved the heart of the righteous that when they stood at the site of where God's work was going to be done, they were willing not just to lay their life down, but they, let, they opened up their wallets the little bit they had to live on in a place that was desolate and desperate because they wanted to bring God glory. God is sovereign over moving His Spirit in people's hearts, isn't He? You need to remember that when you share Jesus with people and you go, well, I don't think that person would ever come to Christ. Or you've got this boss who's a Tyrannosaurus Rex and you need him to do X so that you can go on that mission trip. You need to pray that maybe God would move the heart of the Tyrannosaurus Rex, right? He's got little arms anyway. Just put a pin in there. He can... I want you to look at Ezra 3.7. The pagan king's heart was stirred. The pagan people in Persia were stirred. The backslidden states, well, their heart was stirred. The, the faithful were stirred. And I want to tell you that when you needed neighbors who had special resources, special abilities, special things that the work couldn't happen without, God had that taken care of too. In Ezra 3.7, So they, the faithful returning remnant, gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink to who? To the Sidonians and the Tyrians who were, were in, in, in Philistine cities on the coast, these were not friends of Israel, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon. You know, the great uh, cedars of Lebanon. You can go over here on, on Caldwell. Uh, there's a, on Broadway, there's a, there's a pizza place. It's cedar pizza. They're Lebanese because that's their national emblem. They've cut down all the trees, so there are no trees in Lebanon. But back in the day, they had some really nice... It's like the redwoods. So... But, uh, so when God built His house, He wanted timber from that place. And there was timber in that place when His house was to be re-erected. But the people that had the timber didn't know God, didn't love God, didn't worship God. So how's that going to work, God? And here's the answer, Ezra 3.7. So they, the faithful among the returning remnant, gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Friends, praise God that God stirs hearts. God is powerful. That's why He urges us that we should always pray and not give up. 
Don't be afraid to ask God to move the hearts of the people that are needed for God's work to be completed in your situation. He's a God who can do it. Hmm. In fact, the Scriptures say God can do exceedingly, abundantly more than we could ask or even imagine. That's your God. Do you know Him? Do you go to Him? Do you ask Him? Do you knock until it's no longer polite like Jesus tells the parable? God is stirring saints, and God is stirring ain'ts, and it's very inspiring. But let me tell you something surprising, and that's point four. Point four today is rather surprising, and it's from Ezra 2 as well. The surprising few who would bother to leave the comforts of captivity for the adventure of faith. The very surprising few. You would think it, 70 years of being a captive, of being a slave, of being away from our homeland, when, when God says anybody that wants to go can go, you would think that there would be a line out the door just for the waiting list to get put on the third realm boxcar in the back. But that's not how it worked. Because the Bible tells the truth. And the truth is, even when God opens a door for His glory and our ability to join, join Him in an adventure of faith, we sometimes would rather sit in the comforts of the wider pagan world than get ourselves in a situation that might put us in jeopardy. Now, you were in captivity, and so you would think that when the king releases you, everyone would run home. But that's not what the Bible says. If you read Ezra 2, 64, you will see that is not the case at all. The whole assembly together, everyone who was willing to come back, was 42,360. Now, they had some male and female servants, 7,337. They had 200 male and female singers. They even had some horses and some donkeys and some camels. What does that mean? You add them all together, you get about 50,000. About 50,000 of the 3 million Jews who were in Babylon. 50,000 of 3 million. That means only a tiny, teeny remnant remained would, would, would willing to return. If you do the math, 50,000 of 3 million is about 1.6% of God's people had the faith to walk with God to bring Him glory. And you go, why, why would you not do that? Why would you not return? Well, remember what they're facing, because it's easy for us to go, oh, those people just didn't have any faith. They didn't, but they also saw the problem really clearly. And I'm going to be suspicious that when God gives you an opportunity for faith, you're also going to see Goliath really clearly. And so here's what they saw. They saw that the city of God was in ruins. It had been destroyed, it was decimated, it was desecrated, and it had been sitting with weeds, overgrowing it for 70 years. There was no temple, there was no altar, there wasn't a single field that wasn't utterly fallow. And friend, just the journey from Babylon back to Israel would take months with your women and your children and your old people. And they could die from bandits, they could die from disease, just trying to get there. And once you got back home, you had to wonder if the people who were now remaining and residing in the land, they're going to resent you for taking over their space. They might attack you, and how are you going to defend yourself? You have no army. Even if the returning army, uh, the returning remnant were utterly left alone, that nobody attacked them, nobody gave them a hard time, you know what they would be? They would be all alone. That's what they would be. They wouldn't have all their industry, they wouldn't have all their society, they would just have everything needs to start over, and there's only a handful of us. Now, you can compare that to staying in Babylon. Beautiful Babylon. Babylon had the famous hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was, Babylon was full of beauty and it was full of bounty. And now, you know, many of the Jews are doing the math, they're carrying the four, they're going, hey, the old guy, he was a bad guy, Nebuchadnezzar took us into slavery, but this new guy, he seems like a good guy. The Persians are different. Look at how nice they are. They're helping us rebuild our temple. I bet if we stay, we can make a pretty comfy life here. So most of God's people, more than 98% of God's people, were content to remain fat, dumb, and happy in pagan Persia than roll up their sleeves and do the work of God. Most of God's people would rather lie idle in contentment, in captivity, under the thumb of the enemy than follow God's revealed will in an adventure of faith. That should soberly shock you, and it should make you say, I will be one of the ones that follow. Because the majority may not. Most of God's people would not return. And so it begs the question, what about us? Will we be part of the righteous remnant that leaves our comfort, our convenience and our security to seek first Christ's kingdom and His glory, or are we quite content to be just like the majority and settle for enjoying the gardens of pagans rather than putting our hand to the plow and not looking back for Jesus? If only the Old Testament were relevant, right? Friends, I can't make that choice for you. But I can tell you this, and this is what Joshua would tell you, the very first sermon series we had here together. 
It's over the door of my door when you walk through your parsonage. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You get to make that decision for your family. I don't get to make it for you, but I'm going to tell you like Jeremiah told you, with tears, make that choice. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If we do that collectively, then God will accomplish much with us, through us, and yes, friends, even in spite of us. Which brings us to point five. And that is the strength of solidarity. The strength of solidarity when God's people come together for God's purposes. There is strength in solidarity when God's people come together for God's purposes. Everywhere in the Bible, when God's people get past their pettiness and get united in Jesus, woe look out because the dam bursts. Ezra chapter 3, verse 3 says this, When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man. There weren't 56 opinions and 26 factions. They gathered as one man to Jerusalem. And then Jeshua, the son of Zadok, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God to offer burnt offerings on it as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. When Israel came together, as one man. They did what couldn't be done for 70 years. What seemed utterly impossible for 70 years. Mission impossible became mission accomplished when the people of God in solidarity together, they came together as one man to put their hand to the plow and not look back. Friends, what could we do if we focused on Jesus instead of what divides us? if we sought first His glory and first His kingdom and first His righteousness and not my own preference, how many churches could be planted to the glory of God? How many friends and neighbors could be saved? How many of our children and grandchildren could be discipled who go on to disciple others? If we would realize the strength of Christian unity when God's people come together with Jesus as Lord, not Calvary Church, not the Free Church, not the Charismatic Pastor, not a grand plan, but with Jesus as Lord, and we march under His banner. What can stop us if Jesus is leading us? We ought to pray to that good end, hey? That we'd find out where Jesus could take us for His glory in 2018 when people are saying, well, people don't want to go to church anymore and the Gospel doesn't pray. That God would lead us and we would do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or imagine because it's His plan, not ours. Now, if we're going to do that, we need to make sure that we're well-grounded, not just well-intentioned. God's Word says it's not good to have zeal without knowledge. Well-intentioned, extra-biblical actions led to stupid things like the Crusades and the Inquisition. You've got to have biblical actions, not just biblical intentions. God is never asking His people to dream up stupid stuff for us to do. He is asking His people to listen to Him and then to follow the leading of His voice. Which brings us to point six today. Point six today. Why was the remnant able to do what the others were not? And here's the answer. Because of the scrupulousness of the remnant to follow the Word of God. Because of the scrupulousness of the remnant to follow the Word of God. Look at Ezra 3.2 again. The remnants return, chapter 3. Ezra 3, 2. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Zadok, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel... Try that again. There we go. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Zadok, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel and the son of Sheatel with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God of Israel to eat, offer a burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They didn't build what they wanted. They built what God wanted. Uh, then, friends, they didn't do what they wanted. They then did what God wanted. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written. And they offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule of Scripture, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings and the offerings of the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord and all the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. Now they had no temple yet, but they had a biblical altar. 
And so they made biblical sacrifices when and how God had said in His Word. They looked to His Word. Now, we got an altar. Let's go do this. It's no. We've got an altar. Now, how does God want us to do this? Do you see the difference? How does God want us to do this? Now, drop down to verse 8. Now, in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and Yeshua, the son of Jodak, they made a beginning together with the rest of the kinsmen and the priests and the Levites and all who had come up to Jerusalem from captivity. And they appointed Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the Lord. Now, skip down to verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments, they came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to what? This is the responsive reading portion of our service. It only requires reading. According to the directions of David, king of Israel. When they built God's house, they used God's blueprint. When they built God's house, they used God's blueprint. Friends, so must we. God has designed the church. We must not alter. We must not tinker. We must not attempt to improve upon God's design in Scripture. We must simply be faithful to what God has designed. We don't need to be hip or trendy. We need to be biblical, prayerful, and humble. We need to be biblical, prayerful, and humble. I'm going to tell you, that may not get our name in the paper, but it'll bring glory to the Savior. Which do you want, Calvary Church? Do you want to be known as some great and grand church, or do you want to be a church that brings God great glory? Because you can't always be both. And that brings us to our final point, point seven today. The separation of reaction, the separation of reaction to the same data by the people of God. The separation of reaction to the very same data by the people of God. Look at verses 10 to 14 in chapter 3. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So a whole bunch of people were really, really happy because something they had never seen in their 70 years, they lived away, they had never seen the temple of God, and now there was a foundation. There was going to be a temple. Praise God. And they were so excited. But then there's verse 12. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house. So if you had seen what the old glory was, well, they wept aloud with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though the others shouted with joy. So that the people could not distinguish the, the sound of the joyful shouting from the sound of the people's weeping and wailing. For the people shouted with a great shout, and a sound was heard from far away. Hey friends, some saints celebrate God's current work, while other saints, well, they lamented that the work wasn't as grand as the old work. Who was correct? They both were correct. Just a matter of perspective. We can celebrate God's work among us, even if we continually, soberly, prayerfully assess, is this as glorious to Jesus as it could be, or even used to be. There's nothing new under the sun. Some of those new to the faith or young in years may get very excited with what God does at Calvary in our generation and praise God. And there may be some with a longer memory that says, yeah, but there was a day when this happened. And there was a day when that happened. And I'm going to tell you, both people may be right. You both may be right. Both generations were worshiping together though, weren't they? The old and the young. You don't see that in churches anymore. You go to the church of the old, go to the church of the young. Go deaf to the church of the young, listen to hymns that you've never heard before, unless you're a certain age. We have a church that has both generations that creates all kinds of challenges, but it glories God. It's a biblical church. Here in Ezra, both generations were worshiping the Lord together. Both generations were impacted by what God was doing right now. Some people had memories of how it could be or aspirations of what it used to be, but they were together worshiping with the others. Let's be that kind of church, a church that's eager to serve, a church that is excited at what God is doing right now, a church that understands that perhaps it may not be a day as glorious as some previous day somewhere in some past we simply remember, but this is the day the Lord has made and I will rejoice in it and I will be glad. How about you? Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that you're putting us in the book of Ezra and then Esther and then Nehemiah. And as we enter the first three chapters, we have seven S's to unpack. I pray, Lord Jesus, that there would be at least one S that 
speaks to each person this week, this month, this year. I pray, Lord Jesus, that there will be something to take away, something that we would indelibly imprint in our hearts and minds. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be able to be grateful and thankful for what you're doing among us, even if it's different from what you did in the past, even if the size of the temple isn't what it was one other day. But we would be glad that instead of 70 years of captivity from 490 years of idolatry, that there is worship in the house of God, and people are assembling, and they're giving of their own free will, their gifts, their talents, their time, their treasure, that God may be glorified in our day among these people for your glory. May that be Calvary's story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.